Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Lift. I'm Linda LeBlanc. And I'm Tyra Sellers. And this time we don't have a special guest. It's just the two of us, but we're going to try to keep you edutained. Special shout out to Dr. Amy Noggle at Western Michigan University for that term. We were colleagues for many years and she is a dear friend. And um, that term really refers to the fact that hopefully you're going to learn something, but be entertained and enjoy the process uh, while we're at it. So in this episode, we are going to be covering three of the special topics that we've included in our pair of workbooks, which are now available for purchase. (laughs) So um, these special topics kind of fit into the consulting relationship because um, the consultant and the new supervisor do some assessment of the new supervisor's needs in terms of various areas. And uh, what Tyra and I did was kind of identify several of the topics that we thought were ones that people might likely need some additional support and resource materials on. And for each of those, we created a special topic section so that the team of consulting supervisor and new supervisor have a place to get started. So... Well, I was just going to say, Linda, do you remember when we were first outlining the book, we like had sort of drafted in month four, you would cover this. And in month five, you would cover this. And we kind of had it outlined. And then we were like, wait a minute, for whom is this going to work? (laughs) Might work for the, the, you know, new supervisor that we're imagining in our head but maybe not a different (laughs) new supervisor. So I think that's when we landed on the idea of maybe we need to have like an a la carte menu sort of of the different topics that people could arrange however they need to arrange it because everyone has different strengths. Everybody has different areas where they need to focus. Um, And so that's kind of where the idea, I think of the special skill section came up, right? Right. And the use of the um, assessment to guide some of those special skills and topics um, that you pick. And you're right. I love that notion of an a la carte menu. Um, Someone might choose to use the workbook, even if they have a couple of years experience under their belt. Yep. Um, They might choose to use the workbook as a consulting supervisor, even if they just want to improve their overall supervisory skills and aren't in a consulting relationship with someone. So this is really where we try to dig in on some of those topics that everyone could benefit from, but some people might already be pretty good at. And the the three that we're going to focus on today in this podcast are compassion and therapeutic relationships, uh, assessing and operating within your scope of competence, and feedback in difficult conversations. So talk about important ones. (laughs) Good ones. You know what, though, before we jump into the specific skills, 
Uh, let's just talk just like for us, like a teaspoon, um, since we're talking menus and recipes, um, about what people will find in every single skill section, right? So like all of them will have a little kind of description of what the repertoires are, why they're so critical, um, particularly in the supervisory relationship, uh, and then some strategies sort of for how um, one might assess these skills in someone else, or I think in themselves, like to your point, maybe I'm a consulting supervisor, but I want to use this to zhuzh up my skills a little bit. Um, and then some strategies for teaching these skills. So these are brief sections that aren't meant to be exhaustive manuals on how to assess or teach or learn about these repertoires, just enough to get people going. Um, yes. so I just kind of want to be clear about that because each one of these could be like a book in and of itself. So true. And you know what we do have for each of these special topics is a resource list, um, sometimes of books, articles, that kind of thing, and a table of some behaviors that would be indicators that someone is kind of just getting started and, and needs some significant work in this area or that someone's kind of really starting to get there and be good at some of these things. And of course, there's always room to improve, but you're right. Every single um, special um, topic or special section has uh, all of those components. Yep. Um, and I, I love some, <laughs> I love some predictability. So <laughs> and structure. Yes, absolutely. Um, should we start with compassionate care and therapeutic relationships? Sure. It's one of my favorite topics. So I always love to start with that. <laughs> um, you know, I think this is something that I um, had a lot of exposure to in my graduate training. In addition to being a BCBA, which came much later for me, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. And so for me, a, a really critical part of my training was understanding that uh, my power to do good in the world was through the therapeutic relationship that I established with any client, family, school system, et cetera. And that um, leveraging and finding ways to positively connect with people and leverage um, their current motivations into their ability to live their lives differently and think differently and respond to things differently, that that's kind of how you're able to affect change. And um, I, I do think that as behavior analysis has pulled more and more and more away from the field of psychology, some of those ideas that are part and parcel of certain uh, subdisciplines in psychology have not gotten the same airtime in graduate training programs. Now, Tyra, I know you got a PhD in um, your special education's really your area. How much did this stuff get covered? 
Uh, not in my, um, not in my doctoral program, um, which is in dis- disabilities discipline with an emphasis in ABA, <clears throat> because it was almost all, you know, very, you know, behavior analytic coursework specific to um, applied behavior analysis as a kind of straight up science, right? But uh, my master's is in special education. And so that's where I got um, my coursework on things like, you know, interviewing and developing rapport and relationships and, um, you know, kind of being culturally responsive and things like that. So um, not in my behavior analytic coursework. Right. Well, you know, as um, when I became the executive director at Trumpet Behavioral Health, what I began to see not only there, but in other organizations was that a lot of relatively newly trained BCBAs who had not had a lot of exposure to these skill sets. And also, I think, didn't have an understanding of how important these skills were to their success. They maybe really hadn't even heard of them as skills. It was just kind of what some people do well and what some other people don't do well, kind of almost anchoring it in that it's, it's, it's you, not how you behave. And so um, that kind of led me and a group of people at Trumpet to create resources to begin training people on the, the notions of empathy, perspective taking, compassion, and strategies for building these relationships. Um, and that led to eventually a collaboration with Dr. Bridget Taylor on some papers and studies in this area. Um, and I think one of the misperceptions that I often encountered was that people were kind of afraid to have a therapeutic relationship with the parents because they thought that was a multiple relationship. And so it's kind of like they'd been ethically told to stay away from, you know, any of that niceness or liking each other or that kind of thing. And I think if you don't understand the context of the therapeutic relationship, you can get this weird splinter of now I'm behaving in a way where I want to get you to do what I want you to do in order to advance my goals in behavior analysis. And then, well, that niceness is, is something else, something separate than that. When it really does not have to be that way. What are your thoughts on the differences between those two? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that there are a couple of sort of features of our standard training practices for folks in graduate school and fieldwork experience that make it difficult, um, especially when there aren't those active components like you were talking about, about how to develop rapport, how to be compassionate, how to engage in perspective taking. And I think part of it is ethics. I think part of it is being trained to use very precise language and be very, you know, goal oriented um, in terms of, you know, improving 
uh, the quality of life and independence of the client that we sort of then forget to remind people like, oh yeah, we do want you to be able to speak in this precise language when you're speaking purposefully, maybe with other behavior analysts, um, but it's okay to change that language, soften that language, drop the technical jargon for the benefit of, let's say, building a therapeutic relationship with another audience so that you're not kind of throwing up this weird other language. Um, and I think that 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 you're right that ethics get in there too. And I think that this happens not just in the relationship between a clinician and their caregivers, um, the caregivers of their client, but also between supervisors and trainees or supervisees. I often hear, I'm a supervisor, so I can't, for example, grab a coffee with my trainee. Like, well, you can't be a friend to your trainee, but you can be a nice supervisor, a compassionate supervisor. And in fact, under certain conditions, I think you could enjoy a coffee in the presence of your trainee. Um, I like to always be able to enjoy a coffee. You know? Like I don't think I would be able to do anything if we're excluding the <laughs> coffee component. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think it does get muddled for people. And it's sort of this idea that, um, that, the the topography of maybe sharing a little bit of personal information about yourself all of a sudden means you have entered into a multiple relationship because there's no talk about the function of why you might be sharing that information or or having a vulnerable moment. That is exactly the uh, that's a wonderful way to talk about it. That notion of why are you sharing the information? And if you are the therapeutic agent, Sharing that information is purposeful, perhaps to create insight for the client, the caregivers. Um, Why are you listening the way you're listening, asking questions the way you're asking them? And it is in service of the therapeutic relationship with that caregiver or even with other members of a multidisciplinary team in order to gain information that enhances your ability to do effective programming um, rather than for your own personal needs. Like that really is the thing. It is a singular relationship, which is always primarily in service of the client and their caregivers. And that absolutely has to take um, that primary role over anything else. So for many people, these are relatively new ideas and they may or may not have gotten explicit coaching on developing some of the communication strategies. Like for example, uh, you mentioned before being able to really quickly translate and have the right stimulus for control for when you talk like a kooky geek scientist versus (laughs) a regular person with regular experiences who is communicating to people who don't have the same background issue. So that's a really important communication skill. And, you know, 
chapter nine of uh, LeBlanc et al. 2020, um, which we covered in earlier episodes of The Lift, really goes into detail on this. So you're not going to get all of the content from that chapter, but you are going to get some, what are the basics? Where would you go looking for this? What kinds of indicators would you look for as you know, maybe that the new supervisor or trainee really needs to focus in this area or that area. So definitely not intended to substitute for uh, larger works in this area. Absolutely. Again, it's just sort of like breadcrumbs, right? Like if this is an area that you need to work on, this will get you started and you're going to have to go to some other resources. I will say what I love about this skill specific section um, in the workbook, um, are the pieces of the, what you should assess, because I find, and I think some of the survey, um, studies that have come out asking about supervisory practices and training experiences and things like that. These are the sorts of skills that people are sort of like, I don't even know how to assess interpersonal skills or therapeutic relationship skills or those sorts of things. And I love that kind of the components that um, folks are, uh, you know, oriented to in terms of how to assess these skills are things like, you know, focus on getting your trainee or yourself, if you are a new supervisor and you're working on this, to self-assess, like grab some of the great articles that are out there and just self-assess or the chapter from the book, self-assess on how you think, which is great because that drives that continual kind of, um, you know, evaluating your own behavior and what's in and outside of your scope. And then the idea that um, these should be assessed by a supervisor or a mentor in like a role play settings. But then the kicker is go watch, like go watch the person of interest in these activities in the real context. And that is so important because you know, we all behave a little bit differently when we know like, okay, it's time for me to role play this with Linda. And I kind of, I know the right stuff, but now when I'm in, you know, the presence of a caregiver who might be getting upset or angry, and it may be because I'm not adjusting my language or being a good listener, that's when your, your mentor supervisor needs to be watching. So I love that you, um, cause you wrote this skill section. I love that you included that piece, like go watch, go watch, the person with caregivers, with families, with their trainees, with their supervisees, and see how they're doing with these skills. Well, and I think it's equally appropriate. Let's say if you're the consulting supervisor, watch them, but also maybe give them the opportunity to watch you if you are really good at this. And I, I think that if you've never seen someone who's really great in this area, when you see it, you're like, whoa, okay, that's amazing. That's, I've got like five or six new things that I can do. Basically, I now have a different framework to think about um, how good I want to get. And so, you know, even though we give these sample agendas of what's going to be covered in the monthly meeting, it's absolutely okay to decide let's do this other thing in addition or instead 
um, once you get to the special topics. Basically, you're at this point now where you've created some structure, some regular check-ins, and you can choose the right uh, mechanism for the instruction that you need to do. And sometimes that's modeling and sometimes that's observation and feedback. Yeah. Or debriefing right after mm-hmm. an observation. I also love that you included, like get some feedback from the people that are on the other end of the relationship, you know, survey the caregivers, ask them, how does it feel? And there are some great questions, both in chapter nine of the book and in the articles um, that you and Dr. Bridget Taylor and others have written that sort of get at, you know, what would you ask to get a temperature gauge on how those other people, whether it be the trainee or the um, caregiver, how they're feeling about that relationship and whether or not they feel like a valued stakeholder um, yeah. in it. And, and even I think you all have included questions about specific behaviors that they see or don't see that are linked to them feeling like they are being treated as a, you know an active equal member in that relationship. Couldn't agree more. And I think for people who feel like they need even more resources on these skills, like I'm not sure that I know how to engage in active listening, much less teach someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned Dr. Bridget Taylor, and she and I are creating an extended CE series on this topic through ABA Technologies that hopefully will be available um, you know, maybe by the end of this year. And we obviously don't reference that resource in the workbook, but that, you know, if this is like, sometimes you need to learn things together Mm -hmm. and, you know, model how you engage in professional development. And, and that will hopefully be helpful to folks. You know what you just, I don't, not to derail us, but like, whatever, if I derail us, so be it. something that's really, really important. And I don't even think we talk about it in this way in the workbook, but consulting supervisors out there, you don't have to know everything and be perfect at everything. When you're going through this process, you might realize like, dang, I need some zhuzhing in this area. I need some skill acquisition or strengthening in this area share that with your trainee, your supervisee, your new supervisor that you're supporting. Like that is where the good stuff happens, you know, to be able to say like, Hey, Linda, as we're going through your self-assessment, I'm actually realizing I really need to work on this. We're going to work on this together. We're going to pull some resources, blah, blah, blah. Like that for me would be such a valuable moment um, in any kind of relationship with a trainee or a supervisee, because you're really modeling, evaluating your own scope, and then taking an active approach to developing repertoires that you need and not pretending like you know everything. Um, You're already good at everything and then acquiring things in secret, right? Like just put that out there for everyone to see. I agree. And I think that's the perfect lead in to one of the other topics that we want to talk about today that we created some resources on. And that is the notion of assessing scope of competence, building scope of competence, 
and, um, and applying that in lots of different areas. Like it's not just the particular client that you serve and whatever mm-hmm. kind of intervention you're doing with them. It's also what's your competence in supervision and what's your competence in whatever multidisciplinary relationships or therapeutic relationships. Mm-hmm. So I know this is a topic that is near and dear to your heart, and you actually created this section. Tell me a little bit about how you got so interested and, and really how you built your expertise in this area. Um, well, I don't know that I have expertise in this area, but I think I'm willing to talk about it. Um, you know, honestly, because... I didn't learn. Nobody ever talked to me about how to do this. Um, I think a lot of my early skill sets were almost contingency shaped, unfortunately, which meant a lot of trial and error on my part, which meant a lot of false positives and maybe false negatives um, and probably meant inviting harm into my relationships with my trainees and supervisees and maybe even clients and caregivers sometimes because I didn't take a very structured approach to this. Um, And I was really bad at describing what I had done that I thought was effective for someone else to then replicate. It's like I could show, but then when they were like, yeah, but why did you switch to that prompting strategy? Or why did you put your computer away and start talking to the family in this way? I couldn't tact it. I couldn't describe because I never learned how to be a good self-observer. So that's where this came for me was I was not And I wasn't efficient or very effective early on the way I should have been because I really never developed those skills. And I learned that it's a skill set, right? Like learning how to observe yourself, learning how to then evaluate what you have observed compared to some other exemplar, and then be honest and open about what you were great at and what you kind of sucked at, and then making a plan for how to unsuck those skills. Um, that was really important for me. And I think that sometimes we, you know, the phrase like fake it till you make it. I used to say that a lot. And I don't think that that's really it. I think what it is, is engage in behavior, like purposeful behavior based on you know, careful observations and then tweak it, like let yourself get shaped by the contingencies or create the right contingencies to shape your behavior in the direction you want. And I think this is so critical because um, most of us aren't going to have close in supervision outside of our experience hours, right? All of a sudden you're like, I got my wings, I can do my thing, but now what, right? Who is going to watch out for my clients, my trainees, um, and my skill set, like me? So that's kind of how I mm-hmm. in talking about this in a meaningful way. Yeah, I, I think I think that's great. And that notion of fake it till you make it. I think the good kernel there is you don't have to be perfect at something to try it. Yeah. As long as you have the ability to kind of self-monitor and self-observe your own performance, um, but you have to keep getting better. That's what the make it kernel is. Not necessarily that you make it in someone else's eyes, but that you get good at something. And I think 
you know, I became very interested in this topic because I am what I like to call a behavior analytic um, jack of all trades, or some people call it a Swiss army knife, right? <laughs> like um, I have not spent my career doing just one thing with one client population. Um, and so I had to kind of think about like, what am I good at as a teacher? What am I not good at? You know, what do I know with respect to these kinds of clients? What can I apply from what I've already done and what needs to be different? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you are, if you need that kind of um, you know, I think we mentioned uh, a la carte menu or buffet. Mm-hmm. I need variety to stay interested, engaged, and excited, and to feel like I'm continuously learning. Well, if you are going to do a lot of different things, you have to make sure that you know what your skill sets are before you jump into the next thing. And so I had a strong interest, let's say, in certainly developmental psychology, but particular late life issues. And initially, I explored that in the context of intellectual and developmental disabilities, which I had lots and lots of experience in. And then over time, I began to also serve individuals who had not had lifelong cognitive impairments, but had late life cognitive impairments. Well, it's really different. Um, It tends to be different kinds of needs and deficits and certain kinds of um, strategies will that, that you would never think to use if you were only using strategies that you might use with someone who had always had an intellectual and developmental disability. And so, you know, for me, bravery comes along with a big dose of, I'll bet somebody knows this and it's not me. So I'm going to get out there and see what people, you know, know and like activate that learning mode. So, you know, there have been Uh, periods of my career where I've gone to different conferences. In addition to um, some of the main ones that I went to every year, you know, going to the Gerontological Society of America conference or the um, conference for the Association for Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities or what have you. So that notion of you don't have to be afraid, but you should be cautious and appropriately respectful of the fact that people that are really good at something else know a lot of things that you don't know yet. So do your absolute best to learn those um, before you jump in there and are independently responsible for someone's care. So, um, you know, one of the things that was just tremendously valuable to me was um, when I participated as part of a geriatric assessment team. Mm -hmm. So I had had a good bit of experience with individuals with lifelong cognitive impairments. I'd also done a lot of uh, support work with um, my local and regional Alzheimer's associations because I had a colleague from graduate school 
that wanted me to partner with her. She knew a lot about Alzheimer's disease and did not know a lot about behavioral strategies. So we were kind of able to learn and build resources together. But when I started participating in this multidisciplinary geriatric assessment team, there was a physician, a nurse, an occupational therapist, uh, I was psychology, and all of these people knew so much. And so in addition to maybe the 20 or 30 minutes that I spent with the client each week, I was able to observe the other two and a half hours. So that was learning time for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that, um, that idea that you need to always be humble is really important. And for me, I have had a lot of shifts, some, um, bigger, but some more subtle, but required a pretty honest evaluation by scope of competence. Um, and so I think obviously going from, you know, maybe working with EIBI to working in gerontology, that's a really big shift, but even going from working in EIBI to working with transition age individuals in the same ABA service delivery space, like I think that we are working under a misconception that because I understand behavior analysis and I am a behavior analyst, I can apply my science and technology and it's all fine. Like that's not true. The things that you even legally can do for littles are different than what you can do once someone hits the age of 18 and let's say isn't conserved and has their own, um, you know, their own rights, like, right. Even just what you use for reinforcement and how you interact with things that they maybe bring from home or their group home or what have you. And so um, that is what your goals are exactly. and how you, you know, gather information and input from your client and what the assessment tools are. They are can be totally different. And um, so you, you know, you're not starting from scratch, but you definitely have to add on a lot of supplemental skills when you make that shift. Now, for some people, that's going to be daunting. Like, I don't want to be not good again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I've always, I'm okay with, you know, trying and, and hopefully having the, you know, trying to ensure that I have the supports I need, but I don't have to always feel like I know how to do everything. Um, but I want to be around someone who does know how to do what I'm trying to learn to do. And, you know, like that's not just a personal preference. This is something that is really incorporated into our ethics code. This isn't really discretionary. <laughs> You're right. It isn't. Although even if it wasn't in our code of ethics, it should be something that we do all the time anyway, because we can cause harm, right? Or we also can feel like we have to do everything. Like, you know, very medically involved feeding is not my jam. I'm not good at it. I don't like it. There are people that are brilliant at it. And so I need to know my what my scope of competence is. And it's okay for me to self-select out certain things 
for those reasons. Um, but you're right, you know, it uh, exists as one of the four core um, kind of principles outlined in our code. Uh, so obviously very important because those kind of make the foundation for any decision you make, you should be using those kind of four guiding principles. Um, but then, you know, there are very specific standards that require us to only practice within our scope, which means we have to self-assess and know our scope. And it's not a do it once or do it once a year. It's continual. Um, and that we should be actively engaging in professional development activities that um, help us maintain our scope and if needed and appropriate, expand it where we should, right? Like, oh, my job is now adding this service line. I don't know anything about that. Guess I better engage in some professional development. So you're right. Um, and those specific standards are 105 and 106 that really kind of outline um, what it is that the BACB at any rate expects for certificates to do around scope of competence. Well, and, you know, there even within the supervision section, there is mention of kind of supervising within your scope of competence. And so that notion, uh, you know, as we were talking about creating these resources, one of the things I can remember in an early conversation is this is a new um, requirement. And so there's a good chance that there aren't that many people who have really been in this role of I'm going to spend time every month focused just on your supervisory skills and really um, guiding and mentoring through how to be a great supervisor. And if, you know, if we're kind of thinking through how would I do that, there probably are a lot of people who aren't yet competent at it. And one of the ways to be able to try something new knowing you don't have all the skills you need yet is to find a really great resource that helps you structure what you need to do, how you need to think about it, what kinds of things to look for and what questions to ask. So, you know, it is assessing your scope of competence and reassessing frequently, I think is important. And we also have to think about it in terms of assessing our clinical scope of competence, our supervisory scope of competence, that kind of thing. Right. Our business scope of competence, if that is a part of it, you're absolutely right. And the standard you're talking about is 402. And this one's a tricky one because it seems really simple, but it's actually really complicated and robust because the first part says you don't supervise and train people outside of your scope of competence. And that includes a whole lot of stuff, but obviously clinical skills, right? So I'm not, if I'm not a feeding specialist, I'm not going to supervise someone who's accruing their fieldwork experience hours in that context for all of their supervision. Now I might do a tiny portion of it unrelated to feeding, maybe something else in my area of expertise. But the next part of that standard is that, um, you know, we only provide supervision after we have ensured that we are competent in supervisory practices and that we continue to maintain those skills. So you said that it's great for folks to have a resource 
when they're trying to build skills, which I think is great. The first step is just to acknowledge that something is a, a repertoire or a set of skills that you need to evaluate. And supervision or supervisory practices is one of those things. And I think we're just now as a profession kind of opening our eyes to the fact like, oh, clinical skills, supervisory kind of management training skills, maybe organization, professional skills, like there are these different buckets that I need to assess and make sure I'm good at before I try to train and supervise someone else. Agreed. And I think one of the areas of supervisory practice and skill that is so important is feedback and difficult conversations. And like it, these are just critical for effective supervision. If you don't like to provide feedback, can't provide feedback, provide feedback too harshly or too, um, too so subtly that it's disguised, the person does not know what the, that anything needs to change. Like yep. those are real problems that will limit your effectiveness as a supervisor. And although these don't necessarily happen every day, your ability to really identify that there's a need for a difficult conversation and then to prepare for and actually lean into it and have it um, like that is that's a make or break skill for supervision, I think. I agree. I mean, we wouldn't do skill acquisition or behavior reductive programming without, you know, sort of planfully arranging the antecedents and kind of managing the consequences, right? We're not going to really effectively make any change. Same thing with our supervision. We have to make sure that we are providing great instruction and then following a response either feedback that strengthens it or feedback that suggests like maybe try it differently, do it faster, do it slower, whatever, do it completely differently. Um, and I think that because we come into supervisory practices with really robust learning histories that have probably shaped non-optimal behavior around feedback delivery, particularly constructive or corrective feedback, and then definitely difficult conversations. Like we're kind of in a world of hurt because many of us are likely to either avoid, 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 or be overly, you know, tap dance around it to your point, or maybe, you know, come at it like a hammer, a hammer to a nail. Right. Um, Sledgehammer time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, versus thinking about these as repertoires that we need to self-evaluate in ourselves. We need to shape those up. We need to be thoughtful about how we're teaching our trainees and supervisees how to deliver feedback. So I think I think this is one of those ones like your point about therapeutic skills. You know, you kind of know it when you see it done well, but it can be difficult to break it down into, you know, operant uh units that we can get our head around. Yeah. Um, and what's that person doing that I don't do or how are they doing it differently? And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that notion of all of us having learning history is that we bring to the need to provide feedback and histories. Um, I, it's probably nearly fully inclusive that people have had bad experiences wow. with feedback and, 
And to kind of make that distinction of like, well, that might be how, you know, that coach, parent, uncle, whatever, uh, did it, but that wasn't a professional context. And to, you know, don't be a hammer, but also don't be mercury where you're kind of like, can't get pinned down on anything. You know, it's like becoming almost like sculpting tools, thinking of it that way. And I think how we talk to ourselves about feedback, um, can facilitate or get in the way mm-hmm. of our ability to embrace the opportunity to provide feedback, you know, and if we are thinking of it as, you know, taking something that is coming along nicely in development towards becoming a work of art, then it kind of becomes more intuitive that you're, you're, partially the sculptor helping to, you know, chip away a few things that don't need to be there and enhance things that are there that are great, that can really be brought to the forefront. And I think when we, when we develop uh, a way of speaking about the opportunity to provide feedback, and even that phrase opportunity or that word, uh, it matters. You don't want it to be something that you dread. You don't want it to be something that you don't pay attention to. When you can see someone do their job and then offer them, you know, praise and facilitative information that will help them get even better, that's really the opportunity to give a gift. Yeah, I agree. And I love your analogy um, of a sculptor with tools, because I think a thing that people do often is they think, well, I have to I have to do this thing called feedback and it's going to make this person feel this way about their performance and maybe not like me. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not like me, maybe feel bad about themselves, maybe not want to be here. But if but if you think about like a sculptor doesn't think, oh, I this angle ended up being too hard. I'm going to use this other tool to buff it out a little. Like they're not worried that they made the stone feel bad, that they didn't hit the right angle. They're taking responsibility. And I think that supervisors um, and trainers need to not think about feedback as something you're throwing at someone. It's still connected to you because if I'm giving you feedback about your performance, I have a hand in how you're performing. It may be that I'm needing you to give you this feedback because I originally wasn't very clear or I didn't provide you the right materials. So feedback doesn't have to be, hey, Linda, you're not doing this thing right. Do it better. It's, hey, Linda, I have observed this is the way you're doing it. I'm wondering if maybe I didn't explain it right. Maybe, you know, the materials aren't well organized. Let's talk a little bit about how it it is that you're doing it this way. Um, So for me, I always think feedback, me giving someone else corrective feedback about their performance is really me getting feedback about how I initially trained or set up the environment or created the materials or whatever. Um, So that's kind of the way I think about it. Sort of like, I'm going to throw this at you, but it's going to bounce back and hit me, right? So (laughs) I want to do that in a good way. Yeah. And so in terms of, you know, the most common excesses or deficits 
you know, one of the things to keep in mind is let's say you're that consulting supervisor um, and your new supervisor is relatively new to giving feedback because they were in the position to receive it just a few months ago. You know, they are likely to maybe be a little too direct or forget the praise because when they see something that's not quite right and they think, oh, I can help them, they kind of forget that we need to acknowledge the good stuff as well. Mm -hmm. So um, if you can get out there and observe someone delivering feedback, not just in role play, it really can tell you so much about maybe facial expression, body posture, some of that stuff that we use to, you know, we, we use our whole body as the sculptor's tool (laughs) and to create that impression of caring, kindness, togetherness, as opposed to reprimand, get it right, pickiness. Um, What kinds of things do you look for, Tyra? Um, well, you know, I back it up even before that. And I look for whether or not the person can even talk about feedback in a meaningful way, because most of us haven't spent time thinking about and talking about it. Um, so I even would just back it up to that and look for like, you know, well, if I ask someone, what do you think the function of feedback is? Or, you know, what do you think some risks are if we don't provide feedback and they don't have pretty thoughtful answers already developed? That's kind of a red flag that we just even need to talk about, you know, feedback um, outside of actually delivering it. But I will say things that I look for are if I'm observing, you know, I do look for things like facial expression, tone of voice. Are you flat and monotone? Um, are you speaking in a way that, um, is respectful of the person? Are you speaking in a way that I can tell that you've already made some assumptions that, you know, there was intent behind the thing versus they just didn't know any better, or you didn't teach them well enough. Um, and then I'm almost always trying to watch the feedback recipient, you know, like what does their face look like? What does their body look like? Do they look interested? Are they leaning forward? Are they connected? Or can I see that like with every strike of the corrective feedback, it's like a nail getting hit on the head and they kind of are getting demoralized. They're looking defeated. Um, they look like they don't want to be there. And, you know, none of those are perfect things to immediately assign a function to and, and do something with. But I think those are all indicators. Also, I, I love it when I'm out observing and I see a supervisor with a trainee and the trainee says, okay, Linda, this is what I did. I think these things went well. This is what didn't go well or didn't feel good. What do you think? When I can see people soliciting feedback, I think that's a really good indicator. Absolutely. It suggests that the the feedback has become reinforcing, which means it is kind of achieving that overall goal of moving someone more towards that work of art and that they perceive it as well. Um, You know, this is one of those things that um, like most everything uh, uh, you're the only way to get good at it is to practice it and, and to try to practice. I think you know, there are different phrases for this, but uh, purposeful practice, intentional practice, 
Like, don't just do some stuff, but actually plan out. I'm about to do this. How do I want to do it? I want to try to accomplish this. And while I'm doing it, I'm going to try to notice. Yep. Um, you know, that's kind of what builds expertise and maybe have other people also observe you and, um, and, and just try to set goals for yourself. And, you know, this is not something that um, you have to start off good at in order to eventually be good at. I was not good at this at all. I was probably like super duper bad. And it's just something that I, um, people who cared about me highlighted um, as a need for me. And I just tried to get better and better and better at it over time. And I'll still be getting better at it as long as I keep practicing it. And now I'm good enough that I feel like I can teach people how to do it and also have that really kind of some of that empathy of, you know, why it's hard and how it feels to work on it and how it feels to have gotten pretty good at it. And I can convey that to people, which has to be, I think, part of the teaching, not just that you're going to do it differently and other people will feel different. You get really good at giving feedback, taking feedback and approaching topics that are difficult, that are touchy. Like you will feel better about all of your interactions with people. Yeah, I I agree. And I think you're right. Practicing and then purposeful reflection on how it went, even if it's just a role play that you're practicing and then reflecting on that, but certainly real situations. And for, for difficult conversations, I think prepping and practicing is critical. Like you have to script out a couple of different ways to say some things, predict how that person might respond, um, ask your role play confederate to respond in a couple of those predicted ways because you are you want to set yourself up so that you have responses when disruptors present themselves that you can keep going because you've identified a goal and it's not to make Linda feel bad or to make me feel smarter. It's to help Linda. It's to make Linda more successful, more independent, and for me to learn about how I can be better about doing that. Right. And so, and to ensure usually to ensure the quality of the services that you're overseeing. That's always the outcome, right? So you can always connect back to, even if this feels yucky, I'm doing it in the service of appropriate ethical services for my clients and caregivers, right? So that's like the the ultimate goal. (laughs) Right. But that notion that there really are multiple purposes and multiple goals, when you have that kind of a conversation or a, a little bit tougher feedback session, you know, if you're over-focused on that was wrong and it needs to be right so that the services will be better, you can lose sight of this person not only needs to develop a skill set, but they need to feel comfortable continuing to show me what they don't know so that it is not underground and hidden. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to suppress responding. Absolutely. So that notion of really remembering that you always have multiple goals, multiple objectives, 
multiple things that you're trying to teach with feedback or a difficult conversation. And part of it is how to respond and handle feedback or a difficult conversation, right? Yeah. And for many folks, they haven't yet, like, let's say the trainee, the RBT, the supervisee, they haven't yet had those uh, learning experiences about, and they need someone to guide them through that so that they don't bring the same baggage to their later supervisory efforts that many of us have had to go through. Yeah. Uh, yes. And I think that when you're at the point of a difficult conversation, the stakes are high and there's risk of harm. And that's when you need to bring your A game and you can't be, you know, trying to, you know, trial and error or just do some stuff and see what sticks approach. Like you have to be planful um, so that you minimize the harm and maximize the benefit. And I will say in almost every circumstance, when I have been thoughtful about a difficult conversation, no matter how difficult, no matter if it's even like, you know, a separation, like having to let someone go from a company, if I'm thoughtful and planful, it always goes far better than I have expected. So Excellent. Well, (laughs) so this episode was all about our special topics, how they're structured. And some of the ones that if you're using the workbook, you're likely to incorporate one, two or three of those, because it's just something that we all tend to need and maybe haven't yet had tons of experience at. So we're going to have another um, future episode of The Lift where we talk about a few more of our special topics. But I hope that our uh, discussion today was um, educational and you maybe uh, think a little differently about a few things and also entertaining as always. (laughs) Um, It's fun hanging out with my friend Tyra. Yeah. Uh, So everyone, um, hope you um, enjoy and find good use in these workbooks. And please join us again sometime in the future for another episode of The Lift. Bye, everyone.